as Eric said, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back at some undisclosed future date. Next summer, hopefully. Listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm sitting in the studio with William Ian Miller. Um, may I call you Bill? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you better. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a, a mouthful to keep. Yeah, the keep William up for Ian the... <laughs> sounds so pretentious and phony, but when you're stuck with the name Bill Miller, what are you going to do? You, you, your parent, you, I lucked out with my parents giving me Ian even before it was fashionable. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> was it a family name? No, was it... it was just the name of my dad's uh, captain uh, uh, of the ship he was on in the Navy in World War II. Oh, uh, so some remembrance yeah. going mm-hmm. on. Well, um, well, by way of introduction, so that um, everybody um, who doesn't know you out there in Ann Arbor and beyond um, will will have a little, I'm going to read from your book jacket, because you're here in the studio. We're going to be talking about your book, Eye for an Eye, um, published by the Cambridge University Press. Okay, so here we go. Introduction. William Ian Miller is the Thomas G. Long Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School. He has also taught at Harvard, Yale University, uh, Yale, uh, University of Chicago, and the Universities of Bergen and Tel Aviv, and I've just learned uh, St. Andrews in Scotland. Um, Professor Miller holds a JD and a PhD in English, both earned at Yale. His various books, including most recently, Faking It, 2003, The Mystery of Courage in 2000, and The Anatomy of Disgust uh, Disgust in 1997 um, have enjoyed acclaim throughout the world. And also, um, you were just saying, Bill, that uh, it was just, let's see, The Anatomy of Disgust was just uh, translated, wasn't it? Yeah, into Slovenian. (laughs) (laughs) Slovenian. It's a wonderful place, Slovenia. It's the the northern province of the old Yugoslavia. Oh, so it must be quite lovely. No, it's wonderful. It. It's actually a very prosperous place. And so you are really, you're going, with your ideas, you're you're kind of getting around the world. You yeah. know, Slovenia, Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> What's next, Bill? Well, gee whiz, who knows? <laughs> but we're lucky to have you here in Ann Arbor, actually. So you make your, your home here. Yes. At the, uni- at the University of Michigan Law School. Yep. Well, at least your office is there. 
Great. <laughs> well, um, well, thanks for coming and uh, being with us in the studio or with me in the studio today. And and Jesse, uh, our new engineer for the Living Writers Show. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit. Let's just talk about eye for an eye. Uh, how how did you come up with this this idea? Were you sitting in the law school thinking um, that I have what, to do something about law? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> why not law. write about some real law like the law of the Italian, Lex Talionis, eye for an eye? Yeah, sure. It's a it's a it's one of my uh, um, effort, you know efforts to justify a position in the law school. But actually, it's. Um, my real background, my real expertise is I'm a medievalist and specialize in Old Norse and the Icelandic sagas, and revenge is just what they're about. So uh, this is just another, uh, this is just a, a different angle on the stuff I, and earlier in my career, wrote about uh, the Icelandic sagas. But this is more, you know, biblical, uh, more general stuff about getting even. Right. Yeah, and in the in the um, in the notes part of it, you and and the index, there's so like so many parts of it are just all like the books, different books of the Bible. It's like it's, it's pretty. Yeah, it's a, a close look at the definitely at the biblical and and uh, and the Icelandic sagas. Um, was that so? That was your degree when it's when I said in your introduction earlier that you have a PhD. In, yeah, in, I'm a, in, I'm a medieval literature was what my you know. Uh, doctoral stuff was in, but I drifted more towards history and um, over the years. Maybe it so I could actually figure out a way to do the law. Yeah, because how did and, you get and, to so, law from the the well, Vikings and the Norse? Well, they the... actually ends up that the Viking stuff is just loaded with legal material. So I mean, all they're doing is fighting and disputing and arguing and and actually have a complex legal system. So you, you they they um, at least in the version we have in the Icelandic sagas, there's elaborate laws, elaborate bodies of law. People care about pleading their cases and then they go whack each other afterwards so there was actually a, a yeah courtroom. you, you, you yeah. actually care well it was outside but it's so not outside, a courtroom yeah. open air <laughs> yeah open open high winds and uh <laughs> if you've ever been to iceland the, the wind is never less than like about 30 miles an hour so it's, really yeah. even in Reykjavik yeah even well. in Reykjavik yeah. yeah oh that's that's my brother's um favorite place in the world so i've always since i was a kid i've wanted to go but i haven't quite made well it everybody yet. should go before they die because really? it is simply the most hauntingly uh, beautiful isn't quite the right word it is just like you cannot imagine scenery that is this uh that you're not ready for that's this surprising and with the mud boiling from and steam uh, out of coming out of cracks in the ground and and then it just looks like dinosaurs should be coming around uh, uh, coming uh, 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 walking around i mean and it's this because is... it's geologically new the place is just you know it's right at the where they had their law courts and they met in the summer outside is exactly where the tectonic plates meet so you can just see the earth pulling wow. apart right there and that's not, of course, um, pure, well, they wouldn't have known that, right? They didn't know <laughs> I that. I don't mean to be like, of course, they, they don't know they that. They didn't know that, but because, the, because the plates were pulling apart yeah. there, this weird cliff got thrown up uh, there, which gave them a kind of natural amphitheater to, so that if you spoke in front of this wall, your voice would carry very well. So they mm. picked it probably because you could hear from the way the cracks worked out in the earth. Acoustically beautiful. Yeah, it was acoustically, <laughs> and the setting is just 
uh, as something extraordinary. I mean, so it's, it's sort a, of like our studio here. Yes, yes. <laughs> extraordinary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, um, and so so they would actually so they'd meet and and they'd meet out justice. Yeah, well, the, and then uh, then they would, but then they would have to enact it. Then. Well, yeah. See, like what you would do, they they. Well, first of all, you could let's say somebody um, kills your brother. Well, then you could you could go kill the guy who killed your brother, or kill his brother, or kill a couple of his cousins, or something like that. And then you would get sued for having done that, and you would have to prove that you had the right to 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 go whack in, the guys. in this Icelandic culture. Yeah, you're yeah. Ta- that's what we're talking right. about, right? Or, not in present day. <laughs> not in present day. Or you could go. This is Viking stuff, right? Or you could go <laughs> sue the guy who killed your brother. And then you'd get a judgment uh, that, that if you won your law case that that, uh, that your brother was wrongly killed, and then you'd have to go out and enforce the judgment, which which meant you got it had to whack the guy you got the right. the, the judgment. You had him outlawed, and 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 you had to go kill your outlaw. It's interesting because in your book, Eye for an Eye, you also talk about the the burden of having to avenge. Yeah, it's, it's like not just you know, it's a popular culture. I mean, the the kind of pious thing to say is, oh, revenge, revenge. We would just everybody go crazy. Not in these revenge cultures. Uh, people didn't want to take it. It was dangerous. <laughs> you know, it's like, gee whiz, the guy who had to go whack already proved he can kill. Right. And what about, <laughs> uh, you don't know if you can. Yeah, you're at home by so the fireside. So there's like, hey, you medieval. go do it. Or, 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 or you can say, oh, I'll forgive you. Yeah, yeah. so forgiveness was always very suspicious in these kind of cultures because it, uh, forgiving was, uh, uh, you could only forgive honorably if you were strong and tough and people knew you weren't forgiving out of cowardice. It is interesting because that comes up in several places in your book, this idea of forgiveness and that there's that um, you can be too forgiving. It's it's. I well, mean, as you're explaining you, if, it, it, it's it's seen as something that's a negative, whereas you'd think in a way it's sort of uh, it's it's kind of crazy because there there ought to be some link to a noble way that's or an honorable way that includes forgiveness. And you're saying it's only if it's proven and obvious that you're so strong. Yeah. Well, then, uh, I mean, if you're forgiving or giving up something, giving up a claim against somebody, you want to actually have some, it doesn't mean anything if you don't have anything to give up. Like if you're too weak to hurt the other person, you can say, I forgive you. I mean, I mean, the other person will just laugh at you. Right. Although it gets kind of complicated in the Christian scheme of things. So you say, turn the other cheek. And this can be its own form of revenge if you take it like, um, so it, it, we even see this played out in the movies. So you, you, the Quakers were very good at this in the 17th century. So you, let's say you punch a guy, you punch the Quaker in the face and he just stands there and says, I forgive you. Well, the guy who just punched him gets madder than hell because he wanted a reaction, right? right, right. So you punch him again. The Quaker says, I forgive you. And it turns out that the Quaker is out toughing him, right? It's like, you can't touch me, man. Right. And we, but it's called forgiveness. Right. And, and in a way, it can be real macho kind of forgiveness, right? Like, you can't touch me. And, and it can be a form of putting down the other side. That's how St. Paul makes it in the, in, in, 
in uh, Romans where he says, you know, forgive, you, know, you take, I can't remember the exact passage where he says, you know, give way unto wrath. And then he says, uh, if you know, feed your enemy, clothe him. And, and it just says like, it's like pouring hot coals oh. on his head. <laughs> it's like, this isn't forgiveness, right? This is just a move in the good old revenge game. Yes. And that is, that is interesting though, because if you, it, it's so you'll never, you're saying that it's, to be looked at as a game, sort of this balancing. I, well, maybe high we stakes should, game. We huh? should talk more about what, how to frame this, this conversation with the, um, the idea of justice and how you're coming at it is from uh, the the law of uh, the Italian. Yeah. And, um, and, and the basis of that, let's see, is an eye for an eye, right? Yeah. And you, you begin. Your... Well, that's the, that's the most famous statement of the law of the Italian, getting even an eye for an eye. And and where where else does that come? Because you start your book with Exodus twenty one. Uh, well, that's the most famous. That's the the most famous uh, passage. Do you want to uh, read? Yeah, it? sure. I'll read the old good old Exodus twenty one, uh, chapter twenty one, verses twenty three to twenty five. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And then it gets repeated later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but in shorter versions. And the only two things that are constant among all the uh, times it's stated are eyes and teeth. So really? yeah, the life for life isn't, isn't in the other ones. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, um, he says, uh, you've heard it said, uh, uh, an eye for an eye and, uh, and a tooth for a tooth. He's he's already boiled it down to a proverb. Not all those burning for burning, life for life, stripe for stripe. So it's already a proverb: eye for eye, tooth for tooth. By Jesus's like time. a sound bite. So yeah. So what is it about eyes and teeth? That make him even more, you know, uh, powerfully image, um, a more powerful image than life, mm -hmm. than life for life. So I, I don't know. There's a couple of theories you can come up with. What have you that, come up with? Well, a, a couple of explanations. One is uh, eye to tooth is eyes we think of as the most valuable thing that there is. Uh, in because spite of vision, of, right? Yeah, it, it's well, the whole symbolic well, value well, of being able to see. And, right. Well, yeah. Imagine when you were a little kid and played, what would you rather be? You know, what was the la last thing you'd want to lose? Freudian theory would say your testicles and stuff like that. Can I say that on the air? <laughs> Freudian theory would say that. that's nonsense. Oedipus, when he finds out, wants to punish himself, does not, you know, does not castrate himself. He, he does the worst thing he can think of to do, which is to blind himself. So anyway, it's going from the most valued body Body part to the t teeth. Anybody you know is in any who plays any kind of sports, uh, even moderately contact sports, loses a tooth. Oh, I see. So see, it see. might be from. It means this is a series from the A to Z. You're going to get even, right? Nothing's too big or small. The other thing I think that's going on is eyes and teeth. Unlike hands and arms and legs and. Uh, we we don't know where the arm or the or, or the the hand right. exactly stops. Eyes and teeth are very neatly discreet. Like an eye is a little, little marble, packages. just yeah. like a little marble, <laughs> and and a tooth you can it falls out and you can put it under your pillow. But you, you, a hand you got to sever and it's a mess. The other things just are nice and discreet. And I think what's going on 
is there's something very money-like about eyes and teeth. They can be paid over, and we can balance one off against another quite exactly. My eye is as good as yours, even uh, assuming yours, you can see out of yours. Right. So there's something like paying back, getting even, an eye for an eye, and, uh, you know, it's form of money. Well, um, we'll, we'll be right back in just a moment with, uh, with Bill Miller. In the go, boy. That boy right. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to The Living Writers Show, and today our guest is William Ian Miller, um, who's kindly um, going by Bill, <laughs> or goes by Bill in the it real world, Bill, kind right? or not, right? Um, so so we're talking about your book, um, Eye for an Eye. Uh, it was it was released in 2006 with yeah. Cambridge University Press, and yeah. now just out in um, May of 2007 as paperback. Yeah. Um, so what... What's let's talk a little bit about the like we'll go away from the the meat of the yeah, and the, the bones and the teeth yeah. and the eyes of the actual the ideas of the book and talk about the maybe the process a little bit of writing of writing the book and how how do you find it how is your writing life coexisting with your life as um, a law professor and thinking about the law are your ideas always sort of coming from the law and you're and you're making connections to your past obsessions like the the Icelandic sagas and the you know. yeah well okay now these are several embarrassing questions because my colleagues always think like what the what is he doing in the law school I mean he just basically writes whatever he wants disgust and on humiliation on you know Icelandic sagas and but this is a book about you know justice basically so yes. it, it it actually fits but Writing is what we are, you know, uh, we academics are, 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 are forced or required to do. So that's what we do. And, uh, and, and, you know, it never, I guess writing itself, I, when I was in graduate school or when I was young, I just had writer's block all the time. Each word was like a torture. And I, and, and now it comes, the actual writing 
comes fairly easy. The hard part, or I put it this way, back when I was young, I had a lot of ideas, I thought, but I couldn't get them down. I just couldn't get them down. Was it because you were impatient or just the language itself? No, I just, the torture, just, it just wouldn't come out or what, or who knows why. And okay, so back then I, I, I deluded myself into thinking I had tons of ideas, but couldn't get them down. Now I have no ideas, but I can write like a maniac. So, you know, it's just like, it's, the hard thing is coming up with an idea. Once you get a, a decent idea, it often takes care of itself because one thing leads to another as you start to think about it. Even from the, the, the books that you've, let's see, that you've written, it seems like they've grown organically one from the That's other, right? That's right, they do. They all pop out of the next one. So I start with like, let's say, a, a very serious historical work on the Icelandic sagas. Then and that, that was leads, blood-taking then and peacemaking. <laughs> then that leads me to want to write about honor cultures. And so I write about a book on humiliation, on, you know, dissing other people and, and and how you overcome, you know, that. And then I was thinking about, well, that you got humiliation on one side of the equation. Well, how? what is the look on somebody's face who's looking at somebody who's humiliated? And it's, you're disgusted. So I just like thought, disgust and contempt, there's another book. Yes. And then when I was writing about disgust and contempt, I got, I thought, what is, I, I got off into some virtues of about, uh, uh, well, who knows? One thing, and then I'm feeling like I'm a fraud all the time, led to faking it. Then there's a book on courage because I I, I, I back to the honor and right. you know, shame stuff. And- it seemed interesting because I read online that you had said, well, in one of the salon.com uh, interviews that um, – that you were going to pursue the idea of cowardice, because, which hinging from, I guess, the anatomy of disgust. Well, maybe it went from, from I that. wanted to write a trilogy of kind of a misanthropic trilogy of humiliation, disgust, and cowardice. And wow. then cowardice, I started to, to kind of do the research for a book on cowardice and then realized that cow, that courage might be the only virtue that is more interesting than its corresponding vice. So courage is just the one, the one virtue that generates good stories. In fact, most of the good stories we like to tell are stories of courage. So what is it about courage that makes it different from all the other virtues, which mostly bore us silly, like prudence, chastity, all stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I challenge like, you, you know, to write like that, that trilogy. Like, like, right. So, but what, what is it about courage? So it turned out that courage is 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 just phenomenally interesting because what people fight over from time immemorial is not only is to be known for being it or to avoid desperately not being it and the shame of not, uh, 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 to be called a coward is probably the worst thing you know to, or to know yourself or have to recognize yourself uh, coward so i think like personal experience like i can think of thousands of times where i was cowardly and i was trying to think is it true that I've never ever, I've, what does it feel like to be courageous? And I thought like, my God, could it be that I've never in my life done a courageous thing? I can't think of what it feels like. And I was thinking, yeah, that's probably true. That's why I'm an academic. I mean, you know, no. it's like, yeah, <laughs> no. whoever heard of a courageous academic? So, no, so I think you have to be courageous oh, in God order knows. to, because there's a lot of corrupt things going on within the system that, that we want to believe is completely noble. You know, oh, the university, boy. right? Oh, like, well, yeah, not that right. we should it takes get a into lot that. Of courage. There's no place of more craven cowardice in the university. But anyway, so I was trying to think of like, what can I, you know, can I, what did it feel like? To, so I checked the philosophers. That's the last place to go. So I finally said, 
I got to read soldier memoirs. So I read hundreds of soldier memoirs and find out that these guys, guys who wouldn't have otherwise stuck a pen to paper, come back from war and feel like they have to somehow get out of them, figure out if they measured up. They're anxious. Did I do okay? And some of them are clearly manifestly correct. I mean, you look at them and you just go, wow, if they're telling the truth and you assume they are because there'd be other guys who would expose them. And I, and you just go, wow, what would I have done in those circumstances? Mm. And you realize that you're just, um, that these guys would, well, I'm, I'm getting lost in what I was going to say. These guys would never have stuck a pen to paper but for going to war. And it turns out that many of them had a genuine writing talent. Some of them had a major writing talent and find actually a, make a career end up writing because, right. but they never but would they have were, stuck a pen to paper if they, were they weren't right? anxious they were about how they measured up. Mm -hmm. And then they would tell stories about other people who in their eyes clearly measured up. But then if you read the, uh, the writings of the guy who they think clearly measured up, that guy is filled with doubt too, because you know what? Because when he was doing his courageous thing, he was scared out of his wits. Right. So he thinks, I had the internal state of a coward even when I was being courageous. And then the people, then the people who absolutely have no fear, who really are fearless, you wonder, well, are they courageous? Because it's coming too easy for them, maybe. Right. Should have to go, but there's big disputes. So people, some time immemorial, have always disputed just what courage is. Because to be called courageous is simply an the one of the, the greatest honor we could think of. I mean, I cannot yes. think of any <laughs> virtue. I would rather have more attributed to me. So people want to cheat. And has said, well, you were courageous, uh, Miller. You actually um, stayed up all night and studied for an exam. Or you stuck to your diet. Or you, uh, you know, yeah, that's, yeah, that's much, courage, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, we call now, I mean, the joke is in our kind of feel-good culture that everything gets called courage. Right, exactly. Especially from afternoon talk shows. No, that's not true. Yeah. There is a lot of because when you were talking about the soldier and the going to war it's 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 uh, there is there is obviously daily courage and that's the stuff that we can't even measure really you can only and you, you don't eat because you have yourself to try and actually come to terms with it but there's no real yardstick yeah, yeah, for it because our own yardsticks aren't correct often um, there's this guy the, the soldier in world war ii who wrote this amazing memoir that's fairly well known it's uh, called with the old breed and the guy who wrote it just died about a year ago eugene sledge and i uh, wrote him a, a, a fan letter and he wrote me back and said I, it was, he was talking about how guys got medals and the the kind of always sense that a lot of the, the there was a politics of who got the medals and he said that a, a bunch of guys and I were sitting around we were talking how you got a purple heart if you got wounded and got to go home but they never gave us a medal for showing up every day for good attendance right and of course you realize the the drain on your moral fiber and to just show up in a combat zone every day let alone and, and then you only single out a few for being courageous but man just not running but, is itself a triumph right yes well I, so I or think not the, cracking up the, yes the book is aptly named the mystery right the, the mystery, mystery of, of courage. courage but also i think that comes it, that line comes from a civil war soldier who was trying to figure out 
you know, who were the courageous ones? Who, what, how do you explain this? Because he, he, he was concerned about, you could never tell in the unit who was going to deliver. I mean, the, the little weak accountant, like would be, I like, could be a, a killer soldier. Whereas the big tough barroom brawler, uh, I would, would lie cow- cowering under shell fire. So they could never predict or, and you could not predict that the same guy would deliver consistently every day. So even a coward every once in a while could come through, right? right, right. But most, but mostly, I mean, there were some people who would never come through, and and uh, but the, there was no way. The, the, this guy just said there was no, never a way to predict. And well, it's interesting because you say it's you say it's a mystery, and yeah. I, and, and and I know it is just from even trying to think about it after reading the other salon.com article of yours on that book, um, Mystery of Courage. But um, in an eye for an eye, uh, this this element of um, justice um, and 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 even and what is just, what is even payback, pain yeah. for uh, retribution, revenge. Yeah. I mean, it's all. Um, and, and the idea of forgiveness, as you've already mentioned a little bit earlier on the program now, it's all, it seems all very much up for grabs. It's nebulous. It's constantly shifting and, it, and it's a mystery. And, and but, but part of your book is trying to say that there are these honor cultures that was, that they were very, um, although seemingly barbaric to us, they were very particular about weighing and, and, and measuring, measuring what this sort of justice You, you is. had to do two kinds of measuring. Measuring up, that is, you had to, you know, not be, not be easily scared. And then you had to measure exactly what was owed you or what you owed somebody else. And it's basically a form of the golden rule. So you, if, if somebody does you a favor, you feel obliged to do them one. And if you constantly are taking favors from other people and never paying them back in some form or another, you are rightly thought to be, in their world, not a man or not a a fully moral being. The same thing is if somebody did you, and I'll put it in quotes, a favor, a negative favor, like dissed you, killed your brother. You had to pay that back, too. They didn't make any distinction between somebody doing you, handing you over a positively valued thing or somebody handing over you a negatively valued thing valued thing in each case it raised an absolute demand to pay it a, back a balancing that's an, right an you always have evening out what is the word for justice in virtually every language it means we you have the lady justice the image she's holding the scales and the scales have to come out not tipped but even it's not it's like that's when i know and empty that's empty the, they even. have to be even empty at the start so you know they're not rigged and then at the end when we put the weight in one side the only way we know i've gotten back what you owe me or what the, paid back for the wrong you did me is if the scales come to balance so like getting even equitas equity um uh even, it's just like runs deep. The word just itself, just now, is like the same meaning as even now, Let, like even and just are the same word. Let's just take a break yeah, and okay. we'll be we'll be right even back. Now? Uh, even now. <laughs> and uh, everyone, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Drifting into deep 
care for you You're getting me in deep water Be careful what you do You want a romance But I'm seeking love I know I'll regret it when it ends I'm winding up in deep water Why can't we just be Welcome back. If you're just tuning in uh, today on the Living Writers Show, uh, we have Bill Ian Miller here uh, with his book, Eye for an Eye. And we are just talking about uh, the word uh, just and the word even and um, the balancing of accounts. And do you think it then it's like a human, um, just an innate human yeah it's unfashionable nowadays to call anything innate at least in the academy outside the oh, really? academy okay. everything's <laughs> genes right inside the academy inside the humanities at least everything is uh, nurture and, and and social but it <laughs> but i actually think that there is uh, that there i don't understand how human culture or human society can take place without this sense of payback um, that you that somebody does you something you have to reciprocate so there's this absolute overpowering notion of having to even accounts even as even the good things you even though saying, especially it, the good it, it things it brings like the obligation yeah, doesn't absolutely. it and a certain which is unsettling to think of that if you're doing something good just to do it not with the, the idea, at least without the conscious idea, you know, that you are expecting something Look, in consi- return, then it's unsettling to think that you might be putting someone else into a, like a, a like upsetting the, the yeah, power course, equilibrium. Well, you all know how dangerous a gift is. Getting a gift is, <laughs> is so upset. I mean, and we, imagine if you just are sitting in a class next to somebody. But isn't that horrible to say how, um, we all know how dangerous if, it if is to get If somebody were gift. to just show up when of your workmates here and give you a gift and you'd say what the hell does he want you know what does he want <laughs> but what if you're king tut shouldn't you be getting gifts all the time well like oh, if you're king tut that's called taxation oh that's right, oh, uh, right, right so right. there's a way these things get 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 shifted around but you you and what you can name the transfer so that you can be not obliged to make the payback we could call it grace or something like that. Then God doesn't have to. He just does it. So it's uh, you know he's not paying you back for any yeah, anything you did. He's just out of grace. So is that the next book? The mystery no, of no, grace. No, no, no. The payback stuff. Let's just is, uh, look at payback. So look, notice how many of our words for talking about justice are are words of the marketplace. They're yes. uh, I owe you, boy. Uh, pay you back. Uh, uh, Pay, uh, or pay even coins. For, even uh, you said that there are, are we have the heads of well, our forefathers, Well, we split, split, right? split like, up the body, so well, that's right. splitting up body parts. But just like <laughs> look at now, consider this: the word for peace, 
in our language, the word peace comes from Latin via French pax, P-A-X. And it is the exact same word in early Latin, pacari, that means to pay. It means to pay. To pay over something, so why does it's not the, the the core notion of peace is secondary to the notion the core notion is not peace the core notion is paying and what do you get when you pay peace Be, so, because it's a pain it's a pain back and it's a pain paying for. back the it's debt you're you're even things. you're evening up the accounts with your creditor so he doesn't carve a piece of flesh out of you like a pound of flesh you pay him back you got peace you bought off the creditor now they this idea runs so deep this idea of payback and pay and you get peace that not only in the in in the in the latin languages and the indo-european languages but in the semitic languages too so the hebrew word for peace is shalom it's means to pay back it means that it's the root of the word is in earlier in the in the in the bible it, it's what means to pay back in kind to get even Yes. To make whole but, again, but to, to repair. But the phrase, to, yes, to get so, even, to get has, even. Has, a con- has, um, has a good connotation because when we right. often say it, throw that or bandy that about, to get even, it has like that, you know, kind of mildly menacing, but to get even is actually a balancing with the uni- universe. Well, it's, it's, it it's setting it's everything to back bal- to, yes, to, to straight even. and even. Right. And notice all the words for justice also track the word for right, straight. In, English, in, in American English, we'll say right away, but in English, English to say straight away, straight, yes. right, even, just, everything is always in balance. So that's what justice is trying to do is to restore the balance. Now, this raises easier said than done, right? This becomes like, so how do you even up the accounts? And when we say, and the, the core ambiguity or irony or the mean joke in getting even is in our daily language. As you said, it's, I'm going to get even with you. We don't mean we're going to get back to even like we're each on the same <laughs> level. It means I'm going to tromp the living daylights the out of you, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, in a sense, but then you have to introduce the notion of my turn, your turn. There's other ways to even things out. Now I'm down. Now you're down. Now I'm down. Now you're down. That's the form of what we thought in early cultures was the blood feud. Oh, or, or my turn. I whack you guy. You whack my guy. And over the long haul, it comes out in the wash. Well, you even in your book then extend it to say that cultures see winter and summer as, as it's my with, turn, your turn, that's right. evening things. You out. see the whole world yeah. in terms of getting even. So winter does gets even with summer. Summer gets even with winter. Or God gets even with man for disobeying in the garden. Even God can't not, especially God, demands that the accounts be settled with him. Yes, and you and you mentioned, you use um, as an example um, of, of course, well, we've sort of skipped over we've, the part about, like we've kind of around. skipping here right. and there throughout the book, um, which is good for the leg muscles, the calves, right? The skipping, but um, yeah, we've ta- we haven't really talked about the um, the body parts as oh, yeah. as like the a eyes. part of the you know b- we mentioned the eyes and the teeth but also that um, it could be um, uh, like if someone loses a hand then it would be you know you said that's a messy thing but that would also then um, cause their life to change. The, in the, the, the question their- to ask is is when we say eye for an eye. 
uh, does that mean that if, if somebody takes, you know, accidentally pokes out my eye, I get to take their eye? Well, uh, you might want to hear, this might get too technical for the radio, but here it is. In the statement, eye for an eye, the f- the second eye, the the foreign eye, is an eye that got knocked out or is blinded. The first eye is 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 doing something else. The first eye is measuring the value of the second eye. It's saying that eye that got knocked out is worth one eye. So the eye number one is a form of money. So it's measuring the value of eye number two to get it right, to get it even. But that does not mean that that eye was actually paid over. But what it does is gives the injured party a lot of bargaining power. You're going to give me 100 sheep for that eye you knocked out uh, when the axe handle flew off when you were chopping down the tree? No, I'm not going to give you 100 sheep. How about 10 sheep? Because I didn't mean to do it. I'll give you 10 sheep. He says, well, sorry. In this jurisdiction, the law is eye for an eye, so I'm going to take your eye. He says, oh, okay, 200 sheep then. Okay. Right. So it's a way, in other words, of giving the victim bargaining power. Right, right. So you very, can, but, but it, I do have cases from the Middle Ages, and uh, the Bible, it's hard to find actual cases other than the rules. But I have a lot of nice medieval cases where, in fact, you see uh, the body part actually paid over. Mm. And you now, for instance, so you take an eye once, you don't have to take it too many times again. From that point on, nobody's going to mess with you. So it's, it, but it's it's a way of, uh, it's a form of money. The body part is functioning as money. These are cultures, these early cultures are cultures in which bodies were the were the core repository of value. Right, because of labor. And yeah, like I mean, would... people, how did you get anybody to lend you money? You're poor. Yeah, the, the, my, the, most people are so poor. What do they have? They only have, uh, what security are you going to give to uh, give me for me to give you 100 shekels? Well, the only thing you can actually gauge to secure the debt is your own body. So... You, so if you don't pay me back by this day, you got to come and work it off. So people put themselves into debt slavery or are constantly in debt slavery. So in cultures like this, it, the, the whole body is working as money all the time. It is mm-hmm. discharging debts. It's whether parts of the body will work to discharge debts. Right. But then, uh, you know, ripping up bodies and paying them over to the gods is the standard form of what sacrificial rituals are. And it begins to look very much like the Eucharist and, exactly. and uh, Jesus uh, saying, this is my body and ripping the beds and said, you know, you know, pay this, you got to pay this over. And um, so he's thinking in terms of, uh, of uh, at least figurative dismemberment where parts of the body are creating obligation. And so that just subconsciously, this is, it's within our culture. What do you mean subconsciously? Say, well, look at how we talk. We say, what's that going to cost you? That's going to cost you an arm and, and a, a leg. leg right right um and then and then you take that um the the example of the last supper even you know you you're continuing and you look to say the crucifixion right because yeah. that's like a god is being um, paid is back paid to a god to a god because yeah, right. that's and but but you say that only works in this formula because um 
it's not just a god, it's the perfect man right. as well, well right? See, That's how kind of can man, idea. I mean, this is a standard story, one of the standard orthodox interpretations that the medieval theologians came up with to, to, uh, to try and explain why the incarnation of, of, G, of God in the form of Jesus had to take place. And they said, because man could never make adequate atonement and recompense to God for the wrong he did God by disobeying in the Garden of Eden. And so what God had to do is come down and become man to pay himself back to himself. I, I, you know, that's how deep, that's how deep the notion of getting even is, right? It's the core of the, the most profound uh, uh, core uh, uh, dogma in the Christian faith. And, and you even stretch it, like, or, or you find it, and you present it in the book, even like Newton's third law of motion. Yeah, it's getting even the horse, the, yeah. yeah, the horse's <laughs> hoof hits the earth. As, as, uh, it, we, you know, it, it's kind of funny, but let's say, somebody punches me in the face in fact my face is That's punching <laughs> my face is hitting their hand as hard as their hand is hitting my face but There's you can so you can look there. at it like the hands boy that hand really took a shot <laughs> but um uh yeah there's you know this is off the subject but it, but but it, it got um you know one thing leads to another um how long the, the fall from the Garden of Eden is what got God so mad, man's first disobedience. And this is why you have to have, you know, like uh, Christ and be sacrificed back to God. So, I mean, like, isn't this a little disproportionate? I mean, you know, so they ate an apple. I mean, they violated it. So what, how, so theologians actually worried in the, in, in the early church and in the Middle Ages and in the rabbinic tradition and in Judaism too, um, they asked the question, well, so how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell? And the basically, I mean, there's, there's disputes and disagreements, uh, 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 but, it, but largely the, the theologians and, and, and both Christianity and Catholic, uh, Christianity and Judaism come to uh, that they didn't make it a day. They didn't even make it a day. Because there's no mention of there right. being a, 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 an, another day. That makes sense now that you say that. I've never tried well, to. Well, like, now think it if out, you actually think, think about why would they, if they are living in the perfect suburb, I mean, it's like the perfect place. It's perfect spring weather all the time, or or and the and the, but it's also fall with the fruit hanging, just endless. I mean. The the thing is, of course, is that none of it has any value because there's too much. There's it's, I mean, if if there's, it's just simple supply demand kind of stuff. If you got, if you have an infinite supply of peaches, peaches start to be all that meaningful. And uh, and what's the one thing in the garden that was scarce? That, the apple. The apple on that tree. <laughs> and so they just go whoop. It's the only thing that has any value in the whole garden. Well, uh, let's... Can't resist that. Who could resist that? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not me, right? Um, well, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with Bill Miller. When it's sugar cane time, along around about June, I'll be walking with sugar Neat the old sugar moon Gonna drop her a line Online at you Expect me soon yes, Say I'm yes. craving some sugar Neat the old sugar moon I can see her right now She get the calendar down 
Catch a circle around The day we're halter bound When it's sugar cane time Long around about June Wedding bells will be chiming Need the old sugar moon Calso Welcome back. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. Um, well, Bill Miller. Can is you have here. dead writers? Can on? you? Have de- I know it's I, like I'm, I'm fast the approaching. Name. Actually, like <laughs> don't say that. I'm knocking on wood in my head right now. <laughs> yeah, the 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 Living Writers Show. I don't know who actually. Um, I'll have to find out who who named the show originally because whenever I say it, I kind of think, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like a curse. Stay it's tuned. Like I'll, I'll get run over when I leave the studio. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> don't say that that's true like if you're wondering if someone's still alive then you know like is Howard Cosell still well, alive well you know I, so I, like, I'm a teacher right I'm an a, I, am a, I teach classes and one of the things teachers learn from the, from the get go is you know students will always make excuses for why their paper isn't in or you know and one of the standard ones since you always did it yourself was you maybe killed off a relative you said well oh god my father got sick or that and I can I could never I mean the one time I even suggested that I got such bad heebie-jeebies you know, use that kind of mm. excuse. I thought, I, I, I'm going to bring down, a it's going to cause it, yeah. right? It's, you, so you have this magical sense that you've just cursed your father or your mother by telling this lie. So now it's the hard drive crashed, right? So they don't kill, they they, they don't kill off their parents. <laughs> just like, kill the computer. In my, day, in my day, they used to kill off the parents. Now you kill off the real boss, the computer, right? Exactly. And you know they're lying. I mean, they're always lying. So hear that, students out there. Yeah, it's like faking <laughs> don't, it. Don't well, use it's that like, one. Yeah, well, well, I mean, well, here's another unsettling thing: not just killing off um, like a relative right. to get out of a paper, but what about that the sign on the Michigan highways that says "slow down"? You know, because oh, construction zone seventy five hundred dollars. Kill, kill a worker seventy five hundred. Yeah, you just think like you just think like, that's hey horrible. man, that's. That's all. Well, maybe, hey, I'm good for it. I'll knock off a worker. It's absolute insult. But of course, the law is they don't mean the legislators aren't aren't don't mean to insult the workers by that because and and any how, lawyer going by how, knows that that it's not 7500 it's 7500 on top of the 15 years plus any what you could collect in a civil why action even put that on a sign i is know because me. how they could do that and not think that anybody will think my God, is that all? It's uh, uh, the a poor guy life. is worth, or, or just a human life? I mean, right? hopefully you would immediately. Well, but if this will get us up, but you want an eye for an eye in the problem of how to value human life and put a price on it is something we every culture has to do. You can talk about pricelessness all you want, but pricelessness just means a high price, or it means a low price. But we got to convince ourselves it's a high price, seventy five hundred bucks for a worker. So, for instance. Those, that terrible mine disaster in, in Utah where these guys, and you have to drill and drill and drill to get down to these guys. Well, 
people probably know that by day two, these guys, first of all, they probably never survived. The, the, but they, the amount of money that is going to be spent to, to go through the motions of the rescue are very important to us to show culturally that we value human life. But did they plan that three other people were going to die to rescue those guys? And and then the costs of doing it all of a sudden became, oh, my God. At what point do you say that you cannot throw more bodies in? And yet, to get us back to something we were doing on one of the hours when I was talking about the, the soldier memoirs, one of the things that soldiers or that would that would get soldiers to fight that were normally just trying to not cover their hind end was if you if you could allege rescuing a buddy if you made the mode of rescuing a buddy they would be Everyone capable would of acts of, of 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 courage to go do that even in a situation where the command the the commanders would know like there's no chance it's like the, the saving private ryan movie there's we're going to spend what 20 guys to pull out two guys and we're going to lose 20 guys to pull out two and they actually sit back and rationalize as saying it's good policy you know why guys fight harder if they think they're not going to be abandoned yes so so in the long run even though we're going to have to sacrifice these 20 guys to get out too uh we'll get the guy the guys will fight harder it's interesting that it comes back to this too like using like bodies as commodities like and that's what is with and the idea of justice. And, you know, and I actually say something kind of, you know, uh, kind of smugly nasty in the book about uh, it, it's 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 a there's, common. There's some ki- good humor yeah. moments in the book too. The voice of the writer. It's not a dry academic book. Sorry, well, go oh, continue. Well, I didn't mean to cut you. Well, off, you know, though. we always say about these uh, kind of revenge cultures that life is cheap in those kind of cultures but in fact that's exactly what life isn't so i mean if you hey you bumped you 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 just killed my brother you know what that's going to cost you your brother that means a life is worth a life our culture 7500 bucks yeah yeah that's... So, but we have the language of how valuable human life is <laughs> Let, let's right? talk bill let's talk for a moment um since we're we're getting close to the end of our time let's talk um about the the machinations behind the writing like when is like we were talking about your this book eye for an eye the the book um when is it done like when are you when are you done with the revising like are you um Anybody, are you pleased with the book yeah you, you know what yeah this is like um uh you you're probably well i, I got to find the words for this you're both uh, you want to cultivate a certain amount of critical sense about your own writing so you don't think a piece of a lousy writing is good but you also don't want to get to the point where you're so hard on yourself that you have writer's block that you never ever release anything so there there's this kind of period where you just have to let go of the work and sometimes you misjudge you don't sit on it long enough and i actually I don't want to discourage the billions of people out there who are listening to this and going to buy eye for an eye, but um, <laughs> but I, I let this book go too fast. So it was like I keep reading stuff in the, the since I, I'm you know a medievalist, I keep reading more and more stuff, and I just found better examples after I'd already published it than the ones I'd given, and um, and even found some th- thing, and and I would have 
made the arguments a little differently. And so now oh, I, I want the book back. I want it back and to redo it. I should have so sat what, on it so a year longer. So what happens longer. now? Like, can that be something that becomes part of your next project? Well, like, no, how do you I think it? no. You did what you're one shot at it, and you and you let it go too quick. So so now I feel bad about it. To you know, it, but but then if you look back at the things you write, and if you're writing and you look back at what you write, you'll have very different feelings about each work if you dare reread it. I very, I don't, I only will re- look at, back at some of the things if I have to give a talk on the topic and see what I said earlier. Um, sometimes I'll go like, I, you'll just hate it. You'll, you'll, you'll be ashamed of it. Other times you'll be surprised. You think it's so good. Yeah, it's some gold. And yeah, you just say, oh my God. <laughs> but you don't, you're probably you know, diluting yourself each t- either way. So it's like, uh, it's not as bad as you think it is when it's bad, and it's not as good as you think it is when it's, it's good. Sort of, it's sort of balancing out, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's just even. blah is what it is. No, no, I'm trying to get back to the justice. <laughs> but there's this other thing that, that, um, that I also, when I think it's really good, like, oh, God, Miller, you were really on. You were really on. And then I think, you could never do that again. So either you think it's lousy and you think, yeah, that I could do again. Or if you think it's good, you say, oh, no, I just I don't even remember the stuff. I, I don't I, I'll well, never be able to reproduce that again. Well, so I'll if just you, sink into my dottage. You know? <laughs> Your dottage. Well, well, so if you're not grappling with continuing these ideas, what what is that? What are you what yeah, are the, your current the, obsessions you got and an, your ideas? Well, the your next current project, th- 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 I always after each book sink into a total depression. Very just because I think that's it. I've exhausted everything I ever have to say. I'll never have another idea again. And always there's been another book. This time, however, I think that I actually there never will be another idea again. I still haven't gotten one. I I, I, I we're to, laughing at awful things today. I yeah. just have you like to you didn't. I'd like to note that. Well, I just like like I I don't know. I, you know, You're I, well. You'll have another idea. Well, I better yes, uh, be yes, an of object of contempt to, to my oh, colleagues. No, just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, hardly, hardly. And then um, I'll have to get even with them for right, sneering at me. Right. Exactly. Well, this. Um, well, thank you so much. I yeah, really enjoyed talking with you this this hour. Um, uh, you've been listening to um, William Ian Miller, and we've been talking about his book Eye for an Eye. Um, thanks, thanks, Bill, for being here today. My pleasure. And um, thank you to the new engineer, uh, Jesse Johnson. Uh, Chaz, our old engineer, said he'll listen from Cairo, where he's uh, currently living. He said that'll be 11.30 p.m. out there. Um, I'd also like to mention, if you, like me, have are, love your typewriter um, and you need, it's having it's ailing, um, there is a place in Ann Arbor. We're really lucky. M&M Typewriter Service Incorporated. John, Arlene, and Jim there. It's at 251 Collingwood. I just mentioned it because typewriters, a dying typewriters. breed. You know, anybody, and, I still have an old yes. one, and I just think like my, my my kids don't have never even. I don't know if they've even seen one. It's a beautiful machine, really, isn't it? So if your typewriter is ailing, you can take it to M and M. I mean, I only mention this because I think it's a public service announcement. Um, so in September we have Laura Kasishki coming up, uh, Dan Gerber, Steve Gillis, um, and others coming soon on the Living Writers Show. Thank you for listening, Ann Arbor, and to those streaming in Chicago, the West, and Hope Sound, Florida. The show is dedicated to Thomas Augustus Hetzel. Until next time. Oh, got up and rolled. Ain't that all? I've eaten them now just like popcorn in the sack. Oh, you're coming. I'm a, 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 I
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, August 29, 2007. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. Congress is set to return from recess next week, and the warrantless wiretapping program is on the top of their agenda. Workers in Chile demand a fair share of the country's economic boom. And it's been two years since Hurricane Katrina struck and devastated the Gulf Coast. We'll hear from the coast and beyond. All that and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. The Washington Post is reporting that President Bush is seeking additional funding for the war in Iraq to the tune of $50 billion. That's in addition to the $460 billion defense budget for fiscal year 2008. And beyond the $147 billion war supplemental bill pending before Congress. The White House is expected to combine the funding request with the pending war supplemental in order to make a single request for roughly $200 billion. 
In contrast, White House figures released today show that the federal government has dispersed or made available a total of $96 billion for Hurricane Katrina recovery. If today's Washington Post front-page story is accurate, the Bush administration's September request for additional war funding will total to more than twice the amount of federal funding that's been made available for post-Katrina.